Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to another episode of the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from the massive studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, and, and technically, we're going to be coming to you from the future. Um, we are recording this before we do the donut race. But you will be listening to this after we do the donut race. So, so Brian, how did we do? We we did great. Uh, we uh, how did we do? You threw up, which was unfortunate. But other than that, we did great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Um, and you know what? If there's ever a year it was going to be, this is the year it's going to be. Considering I've settled the show, I'm I'm running it cold. I've done no training whatsoever, eating or running. <laughs> that's right. So. so. And it's going to be really, really cold. So, yeah, this might be the year that happens, actually. We'll see. Um, <laughs> well, enough uh, enough of that talk. Enough of that talk. Let's uh... Absolutely. So, and I do, you know, one last thank you to all the, the, the folks out there that have donated to uh, to the Cloudcast for the, the Christopher Hume Challenge race and, and donated uh, ultimately to the North Carolina Children's Home. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, it, it, we just couldn't do it uh, without without the listeners and all of their support. So it's awesome. And thank you again. Um Tonight, uh, you know, we have uh, – I'm, I'm going to flatter him here slightly and say, you know, what I would consider a, our a Hall of Fame quality guest uh, uh, returning <laughs> to the show. Uh, we, we have Matt Ellis. Uh, Matt is the CEO and founder of, of CloudAbility and, and always gives us great insight and great wisdom. Uh, how, how are you doing tonight, Matt? I'm doing great. You're too kind. How are uh, how are things how are things out in Portland? I have to be out there in a, in, a, in a week or so. Are, are things good? Um, no, um, we've had your winter so far. Ah. A foot of snow. Um, they're predicting an ice storm for tomorrow, and um, uh, it's been really unusually bad, even for Portland. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> there you go. that's not what I want to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, your flight will probably get cancelled, and you'll have to survive of donuts at the airport. <laughs> Nice. Oh, well, Matt, Matt, it's been a while since we've had you on, not, uh, not through, unfortunately, any fault of our own. You're, you're very busy and uh, things are going well. So what, g- give us an update on, on CloudAbility. How are things going? The company continues to grow, but give us an update on uh, how, how your world is. Well, it's been interesting. Um, marketing folks show us these slides of uh, adoption uh, trends with early adopters and early majority, and they kind of have the whiff of being too simplistic but after five or six years, they turn out to be absolutely spot on. And what I mean by this is um, for the first few years, we're talking to, you know, the likes of the people like the people at Netflix who have been like, you know, on the cloud since 08. And they really get this and they're kind of driving the cloud. And then we started seeing a few people turn up in the last few years. You were saying the equivalent of, well, I don't need to manage my spending because it's like I don't need to have Quicken or, or Mint or, or some kind of finance package because my bank balance keeps going up. And I'll give you a call when it starts going down. But then in the last year, it has just taken off. It's like we're just trying to tell people, we're trying to get people to a place where they want it and they get it. And now they want it and they get it. And and that we kind of gone mainstream. And a little data point for you. Um, in 2015 at reInvent, there were 400 or so talks. And you type in the word cast into the session explorer. And there were 10 hits, and I think we were two of them. And this year, there's 600-plus uh, sessions. There were 138 hits for costs. Wow. Yeah, so it's just, it's just we've, we've kind of come to maturity where people are focused on this, and, and now we've got to try and keep up with it and stay ahead of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and real quick too, just because it has been a little while. So, so folks that aren't familiar with cloudability, cloudability is really the ability to to both monitor, control, and really get a really great handle and insight into the costs, specifically around public clouds. And um, what's interesting here as well, uh, that is a great data point, but also the last time we talked, most public clouds did not report revenues, but but we're starting now to see some of that broken out. And, And so give us a high level view of what's happening with spending in public clouds and, and how has it evolved over the last couple of years since we've spoken? Yeah, well, um, it's been interesting to say the least. Um, it was very good to have Amazon break out their, their revenue. Obviously, they're the leader. And um, we did several models internally to try and guess at it. And we, 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 we have one outlier, but um, um, their rate of growth was what we thought it was. And they're going from strength to strength. And we're seeing, we can't say specific numbers, of course, but we're seeing some very large commitments, multi-year, very large commitments from customers. What's been interesting in 2016 was the way that Azure suddenly just burst onto the scene. Like from mid-year to the end of year, you know, a larger account growing 30 times in size uh, so that a big customer is now spending what a big Amazon customer was spending a couple of years ago. And it's also been interesting to watch GCP turn up more and more often. I mean, you know, uh, we are not so close to um, we, we 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 don't have any large GCP users, but we have plenty of people who are planning to do, to be that way. And we've seen a couple of people get um, impacted by competitors who've really figured out how to use every cloud is a secret source. There's one that's good at this, one that's good good at that. And we've seen a few people be impacted by competitors figuring out how to apply those advantages over each other. So it really does feel like um, 2016 was Azure's start of the breakout i think you'll see that continue in this year but i uh, i wouldn't count out gcp they're very very capable um and um uh, you, there's also a lot of second level services coming out so it's not just about ias it's about the SaaS that runs on it and i think this will be the year when you start to see um when we saw the ceo of workday turn up on stage and say we're going to figure out how to build the best app and if we can buy the service from someone else we will and that idea of outsourcing, um, I think CEOs are now getting. And they're starting to see what well, we've seen, the parallels between cloud and manufacturing, where people like Toyota and Apple and Boeing sit atop a pyramid of vendors who are under constant pressure to improve. They're constantly meant to cut their prices. They've constantly got to give more for less. And you know, Toyota doesn't make wheels, but they have thousands of people looking at data and logistics to get the best deal. And they can focus on designing the best cars and all the best iPhones. And I think people are starting to get that now. And I think you'll see a big uptake in, in production SaaS services uh, this year. Um, so, so you mentioned, you know, uh, customers signing big deals and, and so forth. Um, you know, that, that's it's kind of a, it's, I don't want to say it's sort of a traditional enterprise way of thinking about it, but you know, we, we we all sit there and listen to uh, the folks from AWS, Andy Jassy, talk about something is ten cents an hour, or you know, sort of in this in this very granular metric. Um, but we we also sort of realize that that as more large companies interact with the public cloud, like their ability to change their 
buying models. You know, they they want them to look like something. They what what is that? What 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 does a big deal in the public cloud look like these days? Or what does a big purchase for a customer look like? Just I don't know. Just give us an example. Don't have to give us a name of a company, but give us an example of what that looks like and and how are they buying? Well, first of all, this data is very sensitive. Sure. So you know, it's it's just these are. These are now very expensive trade secrets to um, to um, mislay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd rather talk about um, what I think is a very good parallel. So if you think about um, other industries who have massive supplies, uh, like the auto, auto industry have a, a supplier like Delphi who provide components. But there's a bunch of steel manufacturers. And if you look at this steel, it's made to such a high quality, such a consistent quality, that you put it under a microscope, you'd be hard pushed to tell who made which piece of steel. So if you're all making exactly the same thing, how do you differentiate? You differentiate around the business terms. And these big deals, they're not just about, well, you know, we're going to give you this, we're going to give you that. It's like, well, there's this minimum volume, and if you buy this much, you get an extra discount. And if you commit for this long, you get an extra discount. And if you do these things, then we'll go back and we'll change all those things retroactively when you get to that point. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. So if you think about a piece of steel, um, the car manufacturers, I'm being simplistic here, it's much more complex. And this is the point. It's very, very complicated. Um, There's there's people who make steel for 25 years and Toyota paid them to build that plant and promised that they would buy all the steel at that plant for the life of the plant at this rate. And that's the boulder. If you imagine a jar and you're trying to fill it, and that's the boulder. And then the rocks are the regional providers who are a bit more expensive, and you have to kind of tell them every year what you want. And then there are micromills who you can tell you on Friday, and they turn up with the stuff on Monday. And they're all sending you the same product. They're just sending you on different volumes and different commitments and different SLAs and different change rates and order sizes and delivery times and things like that. And so a lot increasing amount of this enterprise um, deals are about that kind of thing. Because a compute instance is a compute instance is a compute instance. Yeah. And, you know, that's the commercial terms of it. And and you're seeing, just like with the enterprise software, it just gets very, very complicated and everyone wants their own custom deals. And that makes it harder to track everything and makes it makes our role more difficult but more valuable at the, at the same time. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And, makes sense. and what's interesting there, too, is the evolution of the services as well. And so like the last time we had talked, um, we really talked about um, primarily about AWS and mm-hmm. primarily really about the, yeah, you think of it as the infrastructure as a service offerings, the very bare bones, you know, EC2, S3, those kinds of instances or those kinds of services. Um, and we talked specifically really around API calls and APIs really being that that big marker, if you will, of, of usage and, and cost. And we've seen a drastic increase since the last time we spoke in, in AWS, for instance. But really, I think with Azure and, and GCP coming up, that ability to go upstack into the services and and really do so many other different things. And do you think differentiation going forward also becomes um you know how good the api is and how good the you know the the breadth of the services if you will um as opposed to infrastructure as a service really almost going commodity i I think it's impossible to differentiate over time because people will copy your features 
So either you're doing something that's very niche or very, very expensive, in which case there's not a big volume. But if there is a big volume, eventually the people who win are the people who can apply two things, the biggest economy of scale and the biggest economies of scale in investment. So um, you end up with, and we see this many other times in other industries. It's interesting, by the way, that one of the largest auto parts manufacturer, which is Delphi, I mentioned already, was spun out of GM in the late 90s. Ringing any bells? All that speculation about AWS getting spun out of Amazon? Mm -hmm. And it happened when um, the cost of capital required to keep doing this uh, was larger than the benefit they were getting from it, and that it was difficult to do it really well in all areas, and GM wanted to buy from other people than their own than themselves. So when Azure and GCP get good enough that Amazon thinks, well, I'd love to use GCP's you know, machine learning capabilities or something, um, and I'm talking theoretically here because there's also personalities and market reputations sure, in the way, sure. but like in theory – you know that that's when they start going. Well, why are we owning? Why are we bound to only using AWS products? That's a sign of maturity in the product offering. That the FPGA as a service or the ML as a service, they're kind of equivalent. Yeah. And that's when you kind of make micro changes. So, for example, I read somewhere about one of the wheel manufacturers. When they make the wheel, they spin it in a certain protected way that no one knows exactly how they do it. Um, that strengthens, that lines the crystals up of the metal. I mean, it's still hot, and that makes the wheel 1% stronger, which means you can use 1% less steel or metal um, to make the wheel meet the requirements. Interesting. And now you have, you know, when they're placing the orders, um, suddenly your order with Toyota has gone down from 90,000 wheels to 9,000 wheels, and you're like, what happened? Well, these other guys are 1% cheaper. Well, you've either got to cut your price or find a way to make your wheel cheaper. Yeah. So, so that's why you had that conglomeration because you need that kind of volume of investment to do the volume of production and the volume of, of innovation. And you've seen it. You started with the operating system as a service. Then it went to these kind of messages as a service like emails and, and text messages. And then it went to, you know, next level, next level. Now you can get FPGA as a service. And yeah. it will continue to do that. Do, do you think we see, you know, we, we see two very different approaches now or, or at least on the surface somewhat different approaches to to pricing still. Uh, you know, Amazon still tends to be, um, you know, there's there certain things you can just, you can price, whether it's, uh, you know, on demand or, or uh, reserved instances and so forth. Uh-huh. Um, but there's no sort of, or, or you can negotiate, like you said, you can, you can sit down, you can pound out an agreement. There's, but there's no sort of like, both. yeah. yeah. Um, whereas on the other hand, Google is trying to introduce this idea of sort of you know, it just sort of automatically gets better for you. The more you use it, mm-hmm. the more you, do you, do you find what, do you see anything yet? I know you said you guys haven't seen a lot of uh, your customers yet for GCP. I mean, do you, do you get a sense yet of people liking that, that human interaction or that sort of known structure of what pricing looks like? Or do you think we'll see over time that, that Amazon will also sort of move towards this, this sort of floating model of, you know, the more you yeah. use, the less you pay, something like that. This is a controversial area where reasonable people can disagree. But, sure. Um, um, so, uh, but our view is this. Um, this these things are, are governed by laws of economics. And um, if you can go back to um, manufacturing, um, if you don't have a big incentive to give your suppliers um, the most data about matching supply with demand, you by definition end up with one of two situations and often both randomly. Undersupply or oversupply. When there's undersupply, your prices go up. When there's oversupply, someone's paying for the oversupply. 
So the more data you can exchange about um, what's going on, the less waste there is, and everyone makes better prices. And when I worked at large um, companies that were involved in this space in the 90s, um, there was a time where one supplier, one customer wanted us to deliver within a two-hour window, so a four-hour window, and we said to them, well, that's going to be expensive. And so we shared a lot of data, and we found that we said, what are you trying to do? And we kind of, you know, it was huge data exchange between two very large public companies who nominally are trying to screw each other over. One's trying to raise his prices, one's trying to drop the prices. Yeah. But in actual fact, it's like we're just trying to get the best outcome for both of us. And so, um, you know, Amazon's dealing with much, much, much bigger volumes of supply than um, Google. You've heard of times where, for example, especially where a new region opens up, a particular type of instance, like a T2, is just not available at times. And so they really have these problems. I think when Google announced the retirement of prepays and RIs, I forgot what it was called at the time, they were a little naive in their understanding of this scale uh, or maybe overconfident in their ability to absorb that their cloud was so small compared to their internal volume that they didn't need to provision volume because they're always going to have enough and we are starting to see complaints from our customers about the way that google instances are discounted because you don't know what the discount is until the next month it comes in the form of a rebate because it's based on how long you run the instance Mm. and so when making decisions about this you don't know whether you're paying one price or the other right and i think this is this is google's challenge which is how to become more friendly to large-scale users of their service traditionally they sold through boutique developers. Over the past 18 months, they've vowed to come after enterprises. And we feel this is the kind of thing that has to change. And you ask yourself, it's like those infomercials on late at night. I hate them. But they're there for a reason. They make money. They exist. They can't exist without there being commercial purpose to them. And no one likes doing their RI planning. We help people make it much easier and much more productive. But it's there for a reason. It's the only way to match supply with demand efficiently. And it's the same as these long-term contracts that Apple signs with Gorilla Glass or with LG and so forth and so on. It allows LG to invest in capacity and, and, and Apple pays for it. And if they haven't planned correctly, then they're paying the penalty for not planning correctly. That's that's really fascinating to me. But there's also, I think, um, another aspect I would love to ask you about not just comparing cloud to cloud, but do you sometimes get asked to compare a, a company's existing internal costs versus various public clouds? Is there almost like a compare Azure versus GCP versus AWS versus the status quo of just keep doing things in-house? Um, is that something you get asked to do or, or what, or how do you handle that, I guess, when you are asked? I think that um, when you are buying capital um, and p- you're basically paying up front, you need to know exactly what you're paying for and what you're going to get. So the, 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 the uh, culture of planning is necessary or else you're going to spend tens of millions of dollars and it's wasted. On the cloud, you don't need to do that. You can just try it. And so we've seen you know, companies try and plan really, really well. It's very hard because it's very different, the cloud, and you're usually doing this early on when you don't really get the cloud. And, um, you know, the most successful way to do this is just to move it to the cloud and load test it. And then you get to the point, well, what are you comparing? You know, this bill at the cloud, I didn't buy any RIs. I 
didn't have any long-term discounts. I've just tried it. So what is going to be the true price? You get down to a unit cost. And so if you think about, um, you know, um, someone like um, Salesforce, they're like, you know, we have this many customers, or something like Workday, we have this many customers, we're spending this much a year on IT, therefore the cost per user is this. What is the cost per user on the cloud? And the really interesting thing is, is that the cloud gives you so much agility and like you buy a bunch of computers today and they're there forever until you throw them out. They don't change. Whereas you rent a bunch of stuff on the cloud in three or six months time, Amazon's going to release the latest chipset. You could move to that. And so, uh, or if it doesn't work, this feature or it's not taken up, you can turn some stuff off. It gives you, it basically turns IT into an opportunity risk. So we've seen that when we've helped customers understand unit cost, or where they've come to us with a unit cost of their internal, and we've helped them think of unit cost externally on the cloud, that they're tolerant of, of, of fairly large price differences because it gives you um, much more control, much more scalability, much more flexibility, much less risk. And um, we've seen even cases where on a software business with a very high um, uh, contribution margin, that's the cost of the product after running the technology, but before the people licensing insurance and marketing. Um, they'll even pay 2x for the cloud uh, over internal um, to be able to get a business that is that much more flexible. Wow, 2x. That's. Yeah. So, so I have a couple of questions, some couple of, of reserved instance questions, because you guys have a ton of experience of that. Um, if anybody's mm-hmm. doing reserved instances, you guys are constantly doing uh, seminars and webinars and all sorts of good things. Um, so, you know, and I, and I hadn't really thought about this, but a couple, couple, couple questions. So, um, if I, if I buy a reserved instance for, you know, more than a year, so one year, three year from an accounting perspective, do I treat that like a capital asset? Cause it's like a contract and do I depreciate it of some sort? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, is there a comparison you'd make between owning a server for three years and a three year reserved instance from like an accounting perspective? Yeah, um, I was surprised when we got into this. Um, um, I was assuming it would be what you said. It's like, it's a capital payment. It's over $1,000. Um, it's considered as a prepayment on a service. Hmm, okay. So it's, it's COGS, it's expense. And again, you know, that judgment will vary. Um, there are two types of big cloud user. Um, people who spend typically less than 10%, usually less than 5% of their revenue on IT, and they treat technical costs, um, ongoing costs as OPEX, and it lives below the line. And then there are the cool kids. We call those guys the big kids. And then there are the cool kids. They're typically software companies, mobile companies, games companies, technology companies, who are spending more than 5 or 10% of their revenue on IT. And, and the cloud costs live in the COGS line item. Okay. Oh, okay. That so, makes sense. So a prepayment of an RI just reduces your future payment of a service that's recurring. That's definitely uh, a um, um, not a capital expense. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes, I mean... I think, you know, you could say that uh, a giant public company does a deal like the CIA deal with Amazon with $700 million. Maybe you could say that is, I and mean, you've bought like, you know, a thousand fully paid up RIs for three years. Maybe you could say that, you know, 300 million of that is capital, but it's unusual. And we're seeing it mostly treated as expense. Yeah. So my, my second question is, so if I buy a you talked about like you know the the CPUs underneath things will will change. If I buy a reserved instance and I'm somewhere in the middle of that contract, 
it, does Amazon or, or any of the cloud providers allow me to go, oh, the, the next generation came along, just move those? Or am I locked in to that sort of chipset for the life of my reserved instance? So um, this is an area that's in great flux right now. And Amazon have been very innovative. And I think they're very responsive to their customers' needs in this area. Um, so until last fall, um, the only way you could do it was you could trade up or down within the same family. Okay. So if you had an M3 or an M4, you know, like the little ones, eight of the little ones makes one medium one and four of the medium ones makes one of the large one. So you could split a large into mediums or you could split eight little ones into a large and that kind of thing. Um, then they introduced this concept of a convertible RI in the fall, which gives you much more flexibility on this. And, of course, there's the marketplace where you can sell unused RIs and get cash payments for them or buy used RIs where you're buying up the remainder of the, quote, lease, unquote. So, And this is an area that's just getting more and more and more complex. Um, and that just reflects the value of giving people more ways to express future capacity requirements and future usage patterns. Yeah, and that was going to. So there are secondary markets then for for the reserved instances. I did. I wasn't aware of that. It makes sense, but I well, wasn't. Amazon aware of that. runs it. Obviously, it's their product. Oh, okay. Study. Okay. So you can, and and we help our customers time that uh, if you know if you um, predicting what's available on the market and what the price might be is is important because you can end up spend getting less for your RIs if you sell them at the wrong time or paying more if you buy them at the wrong time. So, you know, there are trading strategies. We see some pretty innovative trading strategies in some of our customers where they'll, they'll opportunistically buy RIs when they meet certain criteria, which is like, yeah, I'm certainly going to make money on this. So, um, and then, of course, then if you're automating all this stuff, you tend not to buy your RIs all at once, but by a proportion, 8 to 10% a month. Like, if you take the top 8 to 10% every month, then you end up with this kind of mixed portfolio of RIs. It's quite complex, really, and your computer can kind of handle it. But then when the RI market shifts for some reason, like there's a new innovation or a new family, then you can gently move into that without there being giant cutoffs of, of things, you know? Yeah. Um, people tend to look on the RI buying process as like building a data center. They want to get all the savings at once. And if they can't get all the savings, they leave $1 on the table – then I'm not going to do it yet. And I'm going to lose $100,000 a month because I didn't do it yet. It's kind of like, it's kind of odd. And so anything that makes that easier for them to do, like just do the top 10% and you're guaranteed to make money on it. Then, um, you know, people, we help people get their head around that and that change. And once they start doing it and able to show their boss the savings, then they're all over it. Interesting. Wow, that's crazy. Well, and it's interesting because the last time you were on, we we really were talking about the kind of API as as the commodity, if you will. And now we're talking about reserved instances as the commodity. And so it's super fascinating to me because that isn't something I'm necessarily exposed to every day of of something like this could actually be, you know, there is a market that ebbs and flows around. Well, RI is not the commodity. RI is not the commodity. RI are the trading terms. Sure. So it's like I've bought too much capacity. So I'm going to dump all this stuff. What are those stores where you um, overstock.com? You know, mm-hmm. I bought too many sofas. My sofa, my warehouse is full of them. I'm going to put them on this exchange and see how many of them I can sell at a discount. Yeah. Hey, we you know? haven't we we haven't seen uh, we haven't seen price drops at least like 
the real big price drops and, and one announcing a price drop and the other one matching a price. What, what's, what's changed in the last, I don't know, year, 18 months in terms of sort of the, the price wars uh, between the three providers? Price wars are ongoing. Um, everyone's trying to get people to move their data centers onto their cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, um, do you remember buying your first laptop? Sure. Do you remember how much it cost? Uh, closer to four or five thousand dollars, something like that. So, I mean, now you can buy a top end laptop for what two, two, two and a half thousand dollars. Yeah, but it never went down by a grand. It was a bit here, a bit there. Maybe I don't have to have the top end anymore. If you think about a car, a Toyota Camry's actually gone up nominally, but after inflation has stayed the same price over the last 20 years, and that's what you're seeing in the price cuts. So, an M4 can do almost twice as much work as an M3. And it costs like twelve or eighteen percent more. Gotcha. So they're, they're just spend, they, they're just spending they're, they're spending way less time talking about it as a as a marketing thing. They're just making it part of their everyday business. Yeah, it's like um, the new computer is the big deal, not the lower price. Um, and we could speculate why they do that, but um, it's really powerful. I mean, you know, one of the one of the ways we help our customers save a lot of money is by. Um, pointing out that they'd be much more efficient on this instance than that instance. Yeah, makes sense. Ah, uh, okay, gotcha. And the jihads that so, go on so Matt, teams about which instance to use are quite funny to watch at times. People get very oh, yeah. personal about which one's the best instance. Sorry to cut off your question there. No, no, not at all, not at all. It, it's it's fascinating to hear hear that without a doubt. So, so Matt, let's talk about serverless and, and and iot for for just a second how much interest do you hear around this area and and what side of what sort of costing questions are, are people asking uh, you know whether it's azure azure functions or, or aws lambda because you know we've had guests on the show before that are actually participating in that and they've seen very significant savings in their operations um, and, and that was one of the reasons they shifted. It wasn't the only reason, but it was certainly one of the reasons they shifted it. And so how, how are you being brought into conversations around, in around those areas? So again, I'm sorry to keep going with the manufacturing examples, but they're easier to understand. Um, there are two yep. times when a, a, a buyer can apply pricing pressure on a vendor. There's the day-to-day, I'm buying the same thing every day, um, and if this thing's if this widget is a penny cheaper over here, that's where I buy it. But another big way they um, apply pressure is in product changes, new product capabilities. So the new iPhone comes out, it's got a better screen or a better processor. And that capability lets you offer all these new features for the similar price. So you know, um, I think very sophisticated users will talk about um, Lambda making their stuff cheaper, but most people think about it as Lambda let me do something I couldn't do before because I couldn't afford to do it or it wasn't even, you know, maybe I could have built a 25,000 IOP database, but Aurora meant I didn't need to even think about that. And so now because I can do this thing where I can process all this data, now I can add this feature or move in this direction in my business. So generally, I think the price cuts in using serverless are expressed as new features, new capabilities, new performance rates for the same cost as before, or similar costs, or new businesses even, rather than, well, I dropped five cents out of a 20 cent transaction cost and I'm gonna drop my prices or increase my profits. Ah, okay, that, that makes perfect sense. So it's really, 
the the same way public cloud really opened up very unique and new use cases serverless is yes. doing the same yes oh, yes the nice idea that you nice. could run a global television network um over the internet that basically um that basic netflix did i mean they could they could encode um petabytes of dvds in a very short period of time and then put them up over the internet and deal with the fact that on a Sunday night there's way more users than there is on 3am on a Monday morning, made their business economically viable. And so the the vision that they had 10 years earlier of Netflix, of Netflix over the net, was finally doable because the economic model for consuming those services allowed them to do it and, the, and at a price that was affordable. So I think that's what you see. It's like now we, Google's free. I know we pay for it through the clicks, but it's like, you know, the technology enabled that to happen. I think that's what happens is now teams that are smaller, who have much smaller budgets, much smaller revenue, can do things that before that only big companies could do. Yeah. No, and I think that makes a ton of sense. I think it's you're you're essentially talking about, you know, the the white spaces in the market and and the opportunity to change business models, um, you know, only typically happen when when you can significantly change the rules. And I, and I think that's, I think that's really important to remember for the folks looking at serverless. I, I, I tend to hear a lot of people go like, well, we're just going to, we're just going to move all of our existing applications to serverless because I don't have to think about stuff. And it's like, uh, that may not be the right way to, to go about it, but there is, like you said, there are big opportunities in white spaces and new business models. Well, let me tell you what we think is driving serverless right now, what we see. Sure. Um, so if you, if you spit the cool kids and the big kids, Many of the cool kids um, are providing the serverless models. It's the, you know, the Twilio's and the SendGrids that, that, like, you know, I just get there's something as a service. The big kids, they're basically moving data centers onto the cloud. So I used to have a data center in Atlanta. Now I have one in Ashburn. But, hey, the one in Ashburn is run by Amazon and not by Equinix. You know, yeah. that's the mentality. So if I have a MySQL server in Atlanta, I now have a MySQL server in Ashburn. And Bill, who built it and supports that server for me, does the same thing, but he does it over the internet to Amazon instead of over the you know the the fiber links we had to the data center. Well, these big kids, they're really struggling to meet their targets. They love the cloud, they understand it, they want to do it, they're trying to retain their people. But the 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 cool employees want to go work for the big tech companies. And the existing employees, once they get trained and have an amazing success, they tend to get pulled away. Um, yeah, they tend to get poached. I think the unemployment rate for cloud expert DevOps engineers is like negative 100%. So, 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 right. so if you do succeed, your reward is you lose some of your people. And so increasingly we're seeing um, in the data and in the requests from these customers of ours that they just moved that MySQL server to RDS or, to, or their progress server to Redshift or Aurora or something or Cloudera and and then have that employee work on their stuff. Now, when that employee works on their stuff, for GE, it might be predicts, uh, first of all, they're much less likely to get poached because it's a specialist thing that only GE do. But it's adding a lot more value. And the idea that you're an engineer at a large public company and you can run a MySQL cluster better and cheaper and faster than uh, Amazon is ridiculous. And the only reason why you may be keeping it in your data center and not on the cloud is because everything else is in your data center and or because of some data sovereignty issues. 
but you no one's under the illusion that if I want my SQL box, I'm going to go to a Fortune 1000 employee. No, I'm going to go to Google, Microsoft, or Amazon now. So they're starting to get this. And so we think that, you know, the move to the cloud is increasingly, for these big companies, will increasingly turn to a move to services. I mean, you call it serverless. I think that's probably the, the current definition of it. To SaaS, to, to kind of, and they're thinking about everything else in their business in unit cost. When they buy jet engine parts or railway ties, they don't think of it as a lump cost. They think as a cost per tie or cost per engine or cost per rivet. They love cost per database query or cost per terabyte of data. They're kind of used to dealing with it that way once they get their head around. So I think you'll see a growth in that. And I think once you've got a couple of big companies come out and go, like Workday did, and Workday is a little unusual, it's a software company, but imagine a more, te- a more, more, a more real-world company like making things in the real world says, look, we're not going to be running servers. Every time we can move a server to a service, even if right now it costs a bit more, we're going to do it because we want our people to only work on our stuff. Then I think you'll see a really interesting outcome. Interesting. Interesting. Well, listen, uh, Matt, I think we're going to, we're going to wrap it up there. We've we've covered a ton of stuff and and as always, thank you for the insight. Um, Usually we, we, uh, we wrap it up. We we wrap it up pretty quickly. Aaron and I, uh, you're like, like we said, you're, you're one of our sort of all time favorite guests. And we had uh, Aaron, do you want to give Matt our, our insight that we've been talking about for cloudability uh, that we worry about him for? I don't. Which one? I don't know. <laughs> so, there are so many. No. Well, no. So, 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 so here's how it goes, Matt. So, uh, you know, we, we've sort of watched you guys grow over time, and we, we have this fear. So every every November, we watch uh, Andy Jassy and, oh, and, and yeah, those yeah. and those guys get on stage okay. and they give a keynote talk, and and what we do is we go over and we look at who are the like the diamond sponsors for the event. And and then <laughs> and then what happens is half those companies you know get picked off on day two by uh, by Werner. He goes, oh, we got a new service, and you go, oh crap, yeah, there's a dime. Yeah. So here's our, yeah. our here's our guidance to you: be a silver sponsor next year. We want to we want to talk we want to talk to you again this time next year. So just tone it down a little bit. Just you know, yeah, stay yeah. a little under the radar. <laughs> The, the, like the booth was too big. You're getting too popular. You, you need to step off the gas a little bit. You sound like me talking to my marketing people. <laughs> Why do we have to be diamond? Why can't we be silver? Why can't we just rent a suite and have a party? You know. There you go. So if you need us to talk to your marketing people, we, we have we have good data on that now. So. <laughs> well, listen. With we'll the next time we're talking about reinvent budget. There you go. Well, listen. Where can where can everybody go find out about uh, cloudability or find you guys at events and and go. So, uh, you know, sign up for the service yeah. and pick your brains. Yeah. At cloudability.com, you can find out the stuff there. Our blog is there too. Um, if you're on the cloud, there's lots of practical stuff there. And if you ever come to an Amazon event, we're all of them all over the world. So come and find us. Very cool. Aaron, you want to take us home? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're still with us by now, I, I do want to also add um, – it's looking like Brian and I are going to be going to uh, GCP next. Um, and so we will start uh, looking for guests here before too much longer. So just wanted to throw it out uh, to the general audience. If you have an idea or somebody you want us to go find or, or a company you want us to go look up at GCP next, let us know. Shoot us an email at show at thecloudcast.net and give us some feedback. Uh, we definitely wanted to try and crowdsource some guests. Um, but, yeah, we're going to be heading out there in about a little over a month and then really looking forward to it. Well, listen, uh, for Matt and for Aaron, folks, thanks again for listening as always. And uh, we will talk to you next week. 
Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 